Hi and welcome back to another episode of the XL Podcast. Before we crack on with this guest, I've got to tell you about a couple of gigs coming up. I hope to see you all on New Year's Eve for 1994 Love Me Right. Tickets are available from Skiddle and Ticket Scotland at only £20. To see Rhythmic State, Active Force, Ultrasonic, Joe Deacon, Trevor Riley, David Forbes, Malcolm X, Live Singers, A Piper at Midnight, all for £20 right in the city centre of Glasgow. So join us for that. We've also got a Christmas Family Fun Day and a 1994 club tour up in Loch Gilhead. So get involved and I'll see you there. Now, on to the podcast. Excel podcast. Finally, after, I was going to say months, but probably years of planning, I've managed to track down and tie up, well, no tie up, a man that's called, <laughs> that's later, yeah, a man called Guy Nealon, Basie G, Base Generator. How are you, Guy, and where are you? Good morning, Mal. I'm in my bed. <laughs> my favourite place in the entire world. <laughs> I'm really out of it. You've escaped from reality. How whereabouts in the world I... are you? Well, still in Newcastle. Brilliant. I'd say sunny Newcastle, but it's absolutely rotten outside the day. Oh, it's so the same I'm, here. It's terrible. I'm not well. <laughs> so you got a day off today then? Is this the start uh, of a day off I'm having a nice lazy day and I'm going to go and meet my mum she's taking us out for an Italian so I'm uh, going to get nice and fat later on oh brilliant mate brilliant well see with the, the premise of this podcast that we spoke about before is basically just talking through your journey as a as a, as a DJ you know from, the, from, from getting into it as a kid to where we are right now on a dinosaur pillow in Newcastle what I can remember of it uh, exactly it'll be, it'll be a couple of grey patches but we'll get there so, as a young, as a young guy, can you remember what your first sort of interest or when music first sort of took grabbed you? <laughs> All the way back to the very beginning, basically. Aye, exactly. When, when when I was when I was born, my mum and dad used to run pubs, um, and we used to have the place uh, near. Well, it's actually near where we are now, and it had a function room on the back where they used to do Northern Soul nights on a weekend. Wow. And basically, my mum would have us upstairs in a cot or whatever, and I was still a baby. And then on a night time, when it was put busy in the pub, she'd be downstairs with it in the pub, but she'd bring us downstairs in my wee basket or whatever, and she'd stick us in the function room bit next to the bar, which was like where the DJ box and stuff was. Yeah. And she says, I'd just lie there happily all night until she was finished work. And it would just be listening to the tunes. The DJ was on every night kind of thing, just putting yeah. soul. And I'd just be lying there happily used happily in my little basket, <laughs> getting sold up from the day I was born, basically. That's brilliant, isn't it? So it's like even though you weren't really aware, music's in the background I, of your life. Well it's just because then from then on I always grew up with it because each pub we moved on, it would always had a function room and there was always like a DJ thing going on, or was a jukebox, something playing, and it would always be anything dancey on the jukebox. I'd be like, Oh, I like this. So you yeah. know, even I can go back when I was sort of six, seven year old, when I can start to remember. You know, people ask you these questions, but when did it first start? And I can start to remember tunes that were back on the jukebox back in the sort of mid-70s that I was like, oh, I used to love that back then. I used to love that back then. Yeah. So it's, it's, it went on and on and on from then. 
That's amazing. See, like, as a young guy as well, did you ever get access to, like, remember when they changed the jukeboxes over, did you ever get to keep the records or anything like that? Uh, well, I wasn't really bothered. I think he used to take them away, but I think the main interest was is when I would be there in the pub when they'd come and fill the jukebox up with the new tunes. And I was always wanting to hear the new stuff. Yeah, yeah. I was excited about oh, what you what you put in, what you put in, and like oh, don't take me that one. I, can't. <laughs> <laughs> I was always more keen on the new stuff, you know. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? I mean, anybody else's kind of link is probably recorded stuff off the radio or something like that, where you're actually in an environment where there's new music coming and going, and a right. DJ or a jukebox kind of thing. I mean, it's, it's the one thing that went on from then, because obviously when I got to like sort of 19, when I got the job working at Trax Records in Newcastle, it was that thing again, whereas I was getting the new tunes every day, there'd be a box of new tunes coming in. And that was the main thing for me, the excitement of getting a box of new tunes and being the first to listen to stuff. Yeah. It's like, you know, I can't wait to see what's coming in the day. Man. Yeah. I mean, before we get to your days in the record shop, was it was there a certain age when you started collecting records for yourself or started taking a, a preference to a different a specific um, genre or anything like that? It was, it was one of them things again, it was back I mean it was the mid seventies, it was about seventy seven, seventy eight. My mum started buying his like disco albums. Yeah. She used to go with like macro or whatever, the big uh, local like, like a trade warehouse uh, cash and carry kind of place and yeah. had like a section upstairs and they used to have like a record department. And like she'd like go in and she'd say, "Oh, I'll get him this album, you know, it'll be like a disco compilation or something." And she'd bring it home. She, oh, I got this for you, you know. I'd slap it on. I'd be like, "Ah, this is amazing!" <laughs> you look back you... at the tunes, man. Just fantastic old soul tunes and things that they put on these disco albums. Brilliant. Did you have like a a set of decks, or was you just using the stuff in the pub? Just had it. Like, I had a little turntable sort of thing with its built-in speakers and that, you know. Just a, it was just a crappy me thing, but yeah. good enough in my bedroom, you know. And but when I always had a turntable in my bedroom, that was another thing I remember back. Even like, I think, you know, when I was about 12 or 13, she went for one Christmas, she was like, oh, what do you want? I was like, I want a new turntable kind of thing, you know, because I had uh -huh. quite a good collection of albums there, you know. That's brilliant, isn't it? Because it's not like you're just using like your parents or something like that and getting threatened <laughs> with a slap if you broke it or anything. You had your own in your room at an early age. Oh, trust us, I did. My dad had a big record collection when he was sort of younger. Obviously, he was in the 60s or whatever, and they were all 78s. Yeah. Mine was quite fragile, you know, and I bust a few of them when I was <laughs> growing up. I'd be like, oh, I'll just slap this when I've listened to you drop it on the deck and it would crack it off and you'd be like, he's going to kill us. You'd think uh, that was something that's probably worth about a thousand pound there or something. I know, know man, I know. <laughs> so, like, are you, are you building up a collection and then you're thinking about doing your own nights or something? Where's, where's the progression going into DJing, how, how is that coming about? DJing, it was, I mean, it was again, it was listening to the new music sort of thing. So when I was old enough to start going out to nightclubs, when I was sort of 16 sort of age, I was like wanting to go out to nightclubs every night. And there was a set of sort of like nights around Newcastle where you could go out every night of the week and there'd be like a, an early house sort of night, dance night on the, you go and listen to the new stuff. Obviously they, they played a lot of the same tunes every night and it was all a lot of commercial stuff, but the DJs would drop in some sort of underground stuff now and again and it was you'd go out for a whole night out and if you heard two or three tunes that were good in five hours that was you happy kind of thing you know? yeah I was just, that, was, that was when I was like 16 but I'm standing in the DJ box at the, sorry not in the DJ box at the side of the DJ box constantly trying to see what they're playing to get the name so I could go to a record shop in the morning and buy it if it was any good kind of thing yeah. I was just there thinking I could be doing this because you, you know it's like you're there thinking he's pish yeah, yeah. I, I could I, do better than so it, it was one of those things I was in a club and I was there regularly we were going to this one place it was like sort of three or four nights a week 
in uh, obviously got started talking to the DJ and it was one of those things he's like oh, I need to go to the toilet or I'm going for a beer stick a tune on for us and I'd be like what yeah, yeah, no problem, yeah. you know it, it progressed to when I was getting like a half hour or he'd disappear for an hour sometimes and I'd be doing, I'd be like doing an hour but so that's where it went from there you know but see was was it straight into dance music or like a, a lot of people other kind of DJs that you, you probably know that I've spoke to and we're all of a kind of similar age the record shop or your group of friends was kind of like our internet back then you know our information you know and getting to know what, what a tune is and and before maybe like uh, dance music kicked off there was maybe like skateboarding break dancing all that kind of stuff and even the music that went with it was you having a running about with a group of friends that shared interests you know and 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 the culture kind of thing it, it wasn't, I mean, they, they weren't into the music as I was, but we were all went through the different things, like we're into the BMX and yeah, yeah. And the electro sort of breakdancing music was big at the time. You had a your bunch of people who were into BMXs and you had another bunch of people who were into breakdancing. But I used to hang out with both sort of crews and I'd yeah. be out with my mates with the BMXs and they'd all be into the electro stuff that I'd be getting off the breakdance lot and I'd be playing the tapes to them and they'd be like, oh, this is amazing, what's this? So I converted a lot of people who were at the time into, you know, rock and pop and all that into electro and like hip-hop, early hip-hop stuff. Yeah. So uh, that was the main grabber for me. I went from listening to sort of a mixed bunch of soul, jazz, funk sort of tunes into, wow, this electro hip-hop stuff's amazing. And yeah. it sort of that kept us going until house music came in in sort of 86, 87. All the old electro albums were just incredible, weren't they? You know, like, oh, I, I, I just used to think they came from the moon. You know, like, I couldn't believe the sound on them. Aye. Electro 5, always like the, one of the best albums ever. I used to play that thing to death. Aye. Oh, amazing album. Was you, making, was you making tapes back then of just favourite records and sharing them with mates and stuff on the, on the boogie boxes or whatever, Aye. boom boxes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you know? Tell me as well. I used to buy a lot of stuff on vinyl because as soon as I got a, like a new tape out, I'd pick out the best couple of tracks off that tape and I'd be up to the local record store and I'd be saying, "I need a copy of this record. Can you get it?" And they were like, "Yeah, where have you heard this sort of thing?" You'd say, "Oh, got it on this tape from such and such." And they're like, oh, "All right, cool." I did go out the way to order in for anything, you know. Brilliant. Did you know? Tell me, you were like in a BMX competition or something. You was really well in. We BMX and am I get mixed up? I, I mean, we used to race around the country. We used to go up and down doing the nationals in sort of 84, 85 time. And then I got into the freestyling a bit more than the racing. So I got a couple of freestyle teams, like a local freestyle team doing displays and things. That's amazing, yeah. man. <laughs> what was it quite a high standard or what are you yeah, talking about? Yeah, I mean, we're all right. We're good, good enough to get paid to do displays when we were sort of 14, 15 year old, you know? We used to get money. And That's <laughs> money amazing, man. So it was all right. What kind of BMX did you have? Or what ones uh, can you remember? I mean, I had a Skyway TA uh, at one point, but then I got into the race and I got a GHP Pro. Um, so Back I was riding around that for a while. But it, it was it was well built up. It was, it was worth a fair few quid. Like I bet you. See, I still look at pictures of BMXs and it makes me go weak at the knees. You know, like, I just I don't know if it just unlocks all the memories of your childhood and all that. I've just been looking at some stuff recently. There's a red line. They've just released uh, an exact copy of the RL22 Freestyler from back in 85, 86 time. And uh, they're selling them for something like $3,000. That's mental, isn't it? And it's, it's just looking at it. I mean, you see these guys who buy these bikes and they put them on the wall in the living room. They're never going to ride it. Just gonna <laughs> look it and I'm like, oh, I can't understand it. I'd say, I would totally have that up on my wall. <laughs> I would dig well on it. 
Aye, because <laughs> <laughs> for three grand, man. I, I but even even like guys your size on a BMX now, you just feel like uh, a fucking good. giant. Oh man! So I mean, I think, but I, I don't know about you, but I think like see that that feeling of the break dancing the BMX and it's just that collective of running about with people who are into the same kind of things like you were saying you were jumping between the two and sharing the music but I think that really kind of helped when when dance music sort of culture and the rave scene kicked off it was still that feeling of this is your thing and it's your group of pals and stuff like that mm-hmm. are you seeing with- sorry, sorry are you seeing in the clubs the change from like commercial pop to slowly getting into dance music or did that happen when you were more DJing? I, what I used to notice when I, say, I used to talk about going to these nightclubs in Newcastle we used to go every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night I guaranteed we'd be able to go to somewhere there were some nights that me and my group of friends which was about you know anywhere between 5 and 12 people maybe it would only be us in the club and we'd yeah. be going there I'd be there for the music but my mates were all into the dance scene like the, the sort of jazz dancing sort of thing so they'd go and just dance all night and I'd just go there to listen to music all night none would buy any drinks at the yeah, yeah. How those clubs made any money and we used to go in some nights and just go you know there could be a thousand people in here and there's like ten of us and it's just our group but yeah. after a while it started you know like more people would start filtering in as they sort of got into the house music sound it was mainly these the specialist nights they weren't very well promoted and I think a lot of people just used to come through the door just think now they're going to come and have a drink and they'd go what's this music they're playing in yeah, yeah. and they would just leave kind of thing but we'd be there all night but it gradually over you know like a couple of years it started to get busier and busier and people got sort of more exposed to the music and they would go to these nights but like you see at the start it was as if it was our thing yeah is there any particular tracks that you remember at that kind of period that they were just you're just like well, fucking hell that's amazing um at the period i mean the, the main thing that changed for me obviously was acid house i mm. mean i was in a club and heard future acid tracks and it just blew my mind yeah i was yep. just like straight on the phone at a record shop i need a copy of this record and it was another future track uh, future jacks was another one i heard and I didn't realise it was on the B side of it. And so I got this one vinyl through with two massive tracks. Just getting the shakes, putting it on the deck and all uh, that. It's like, it, ah. it, really, it changed me because listening to that from what you were used to at the time, it yep. was just mind blown. We I mean, got a yep. lot of the early sort of Chicago house sound albums, but that, you know, when the acid, really, the real hard acid stuff came in, that changed me. It's all I wanted to listen to. I just switched off from everything else. I didn't listen to breakdance, hip hop stuff anymore. It was just acid house, acid yeah. house. What I want to hear. Then thought of Detroit techno came in around the same sort of time. Just wanted to listen to that, you know. And was a club nights popping up, specialising in that, or was it still a, a kind of? Mix? I wouldn't say they were specialising in it. They said that they would play it, but like you say, you would be there all night. And if the DJ dropped two or three good tracks you'd be yeah. happy kind of but yeah. the DJs didn't like playing stuff like that in the mainstream nights because it just killed the dance floor straight away yeah. you know you'd say, oh, stick this on the goal you know there's 500 people in here and there's 300 of the dance floor I put that on I'm going to clear the dance floor yeah. that's not my job because back then your DJ your main job was keep the dance floor full no matter what you know Yeah. so they were never keen on playing anything too hard too underground did you start doing your own wee nights then or anything I, like that that was, that was the main thing it was, it, was the, it was the same thing when I started getting guest spots in the club <laughs> one at a time I was only 17 and the manager found out that I was still 17 and he bought us from the club <laughs> <laughs> he, bought, he bought us for about four months until I t- hit my birthday and he said he can come back 
<laughs> he said, but seriously, my job would be on the line if they found out you were working yeah. in your... You weren't even 18. Was it a DJ that you knew just from pestering him about what records are that gave you a shot? Pestering the life out of him. Um, can, but can you remember his name? He was keen about it because I went in and I was keen as well and I would, would talk about the tracks as well. I wasn't just there doing his nothing because yeah. I, I showed an interest, you know. You're probably switching him onto some tracks that he probably never even heard of oh, as well. Oh, no, because he'd never... We, we took him to some club nights that we used to go to. We used to go down to a thing at uh, Sheffield, the City Hall down there, which was run by uh, Winston Hazel and Forge Masters. And they played a different kind of hard house down there, you know, them the early days, acid and the early, early Detroit sort of stuff. Uh-huh. They were obviously they were the Forge Masters, you know, the LFO sound came in and oh, wow. one kind of thing. And we took him down to there and like you say, we opened his mind big time. He was like, Wow, you know, and then he started going to the record shops and buying the stuff that he'd heard down there, and then he'd start dropping it in the club up in Newcastle. So it started to spread it, you know. What was his name? Uh, Gary, um Gary Manius. Was, is it somebody uh, you still uh, keep in touch with, or is? I, I, I know where he is. Now I've actually, funny enough, I met, met his was his brother-in-law. I think I bumped into just mad a couple of years back. I don't know how it was. What, just talking to this guy, and he just I can't remember how the conversation went, but it turned out it was it was his brother-in-law, and I was like, oh my god, small world, like that's amazing. I mean, it's great because guys like that giving a kid time. God. Is I mean, it's I, I don't even know if that happens as much now. You know what I mean? Whereas everybody seems to be like focused on their own thing and all that kind of stuff you know and if somebody's pissed on you're just like ah mate later on or whatever you know it's, it's difficult I mean you must have been through it I've been through it all through the years as, as me DJing and you'd get guys coming up in the club and they'd just do your nutting yeah. and you'd just be like Jesus Christ give us a break you know what I mean but somebody would come through who would be that keen and on the same level you couldn't help but ah uh, you'd see it and I'll tell you exactly the same the story it was Technotrance Alex uh-huh. Me and like best of buds now, uh, but at the time it was borderline. He came up to me and he started doing my <laughs> <laughs> really keen, and we was started, you know, sort of chatting and it's uh, hooked up for life, brothers for life. You know what I mean? Ah, uh, bro. Well, we could get get to that. Why you like focus on on you? So like, this guy's Gary's gave you a break. You're getting like ten minutes, twenty minutes, sometimes an hour. You're getting kicked out because you're seventeen. Then you're back at your eighteen. Right. <laughs> Are you just solely playing what you want, or are you still trying to no, keep no, everybody I, happy? I, I would take a bag of records in with us of stuff that I'd like to play, but I was really playing his out of his box. Yeah, yeah. I mean, while I was in there, I used to go through his record. I'd probably know his record collection better than he did because I'd be zooming through them all the time, so I'd know exactly what I would play if I had to take over from him. But I'd always think, I'll sneak this one in. And he'd always be like, saying, oh, don't do it, don't risk it. Don't risk it. <laughs> there was a couple of times he was right, and I said, oh, I'm going to try this little dance. And I swear to God, within five minutes, within, <laughs> within a minute of it going on, the dance floor was empty, and you were like, oh, no. <laughs> Rewind. Rewind. Just get it off, get the next one on quick. <laughs> uh, but I, it, it's, it's a way you had to learn the trade, you know what I mean? Yep. Watching, watching a good DJ keep the dance floor going all night long it was something that you know but appreciate it and respect what they could do you know Aye, that's one a- in particular this is where I got my DJing style from he was a guy called Little Jeff and he did the Friday nights in this uh, club and walkers in Newcastle and I'd go in and I didn't really know him uh, but I just wanted to go to the club because I loved the club and I went in, went in one night to see what he was like. He's basically like a wedding DJ playing all like just well, like up-tempo, dancey stuff that you'd hear in a wedding disco kind of thing. Yeah. But the way he did it was he used to drop every track in at the chorus, the bit that you'd know. He didn't mess around with the intro or the rest of it. He'd just drop it in and it would be like a tune every 30 seconds 
and he would have the he did this for I think we listened to him for six hours one night and he did that constantly for the six hours and he had the dance floor full all night just 30 seconds of a track 20 seconds of a track just every bit just the chorus the anthem the bit that you sing along to yeah. I just thought wow that's that's DJing that's how I'm going to DJ yeah, just I'm, keeping it up there 100% don't, don't mess about the mixing and fannying on just drop it in how where the bits that they know and just watch the crowd go ooh and well that's how I came to, <laughs> that was kind of my style <laughs> <laughs> when you, it, when, it didn't work for a lot of people a lot of people give us grief for it but you know what it is the majority liked it so winning but that's the thing I, I don't think it's so bad now but I remember back then it was kind of like the pressure was on and it was usually like the five other DJs in the corner bitching about your set rather than, you know, yeah. you're, you're rocking a full house and you just feel on your back the five people in the back just like, oh, that mix or whatever. You know, you it's, it's more about the, the dance floor, isn't it? It's totally all about the dance floor, but unfortunately, some of these DJs don't realise it, and they're all about the mixing. And it's always oh, didn't do that very well. I would have done that better. It's like it's not. It's all about the dance floor, and that's what I learned from my the, the early days. Was yeah. You've got to keep the dance floor going. Doesn't matter about the mixing. Nobody's there listening to the mixing. The only person who's listening to the mixing is the other DJs who yeah. they were better than you, and they should be on. Nobody on that dance floor is giving a shit about the mixing. Ah, uh, they just want to hear the tunes and they dance. Want to hear the tunes, which is what I used to do. Didn't use uh-huh. the chaos to go in and get drunk and have a right good laugh, party on with the rest of the crowd and just play the tunes. Don't care about how per- technically perfect you are, you know what I mean? Uh, what do you mean, used to? We were down yes. at Linda's farm. <laughs> <laughs> and you were partying more than MDL. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just there to prove a point sometimes now. I can't mix. <laughs> um, so, I mean, are you, are you quickly starting to think about doing your own nights? How, how what's the next move from just like helping out Gary and getting uh, a spot here or there uh, how's it was it was the same thing was like we weren't getting the music that we wanted so there's me and the same, me and group of mates were thinking we're gonna have to do our own night whereas I'll be the resident DJ and therefore we get to play out the music that we want and yeah. hopefully we'll get enough people interested in it to fill a club and uh, we did a few in Newcastle just wee, wee clubs little 200 capacity sort of things and you know the first one we got like 30, 40 people to the next one we got 50, 60 and the next one we got 80, 90 sort of things so we all gradually built it up and built it up Did um, you have a name for these nights or? Just no, we used to just do random, just uh-huh. mix just different names all the time, kind of thing. And then we did a couple of things which were like on a Saturday afternoon where we did sort of electro and break dancing stuff as well. Um, we played a little bit of house to kind of get the, the, the breakers into the house music, yeah. which it, actually, it did because when the rave scene sort of kicked off in the early years, a lot of the old break dance crew were into that kind of up tempo, housey sort of beat sort of thing, and yeah. they got into rave music from there. And we, where's the sort of next? progression are you feeling at that time i'm a fucking dj or is it still all new no, and exciting the time, I, mean, I hadn't got it i didn't have a dj name or anything like that it was just a you know you just out hopefully to get into a club and play some tunes that you like on a nice loud sound system yeah. it's the, the, the nice thing you want to hear on a nice bose system in a club um <clears throat> what kind of years that guy this was 88 89 right um which is around about the time i got the job working at tracks records in newcastle Oh, okay. um, are you, are you, is that through your love of music? You're just like I want to walk, walk I, in a record we're, shop. We're looking for somebody to come work in the shop, and some one of the, the one of the DJs from the club who I used to go to said, "Yeah, there's a guy, guy. He absolutely <laughs> like, of music. There's nothing he doesn't know because I was I was a complete train spotter about everything, and it wasn't just like the sort of current stuff that you could ask us questions about 70s soul and disco and funk R and B stuff, and I would know everything about everything. So it was yeah. like, he's ideal to have him in a record shop." 
Um, plus, I could sell shit anybody. <laughs> Aye, but you, you just enjoyed the full process. Eh? You just enjoyed the full process. Enjoyed it. Absolutely loved it. Imagine me like a complete music lover and getting a job in a record shop. It was yeah. like, couldn't, couldn't, couldn't I wish for more, you know? I, I mean, but it's kind of like a, 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 a double-edged sword in it because you're getting your money from them but then probably spending it back in the record shop with new records. Aye. Oh, I no wages. I know. Wages. I didn't used to eat because I used to spend everything on vinyl. But uh, obviously working in the record shop, you've got DJ work straight away because you were the main like, sort of promotion place in the town and you were yep. having the sales so every promoter were like you know you need the guy working in the record shop because he'll promote it and sell the tickets and put the poster up prime positions and all the rest of yeah it. yeah we started getting you know paid gigs from working in the record shop which was uh, nice because it was more vinyl I could buy uh, brilliant I mean also as well like I was saying the record shop's the hub for the community so you're probably getting to meet other people like promoters DJs everybody. ravers everybody uh, that's as I say, became like the face of it all in Newcastle because everybody came to our shop. We were the main shop in Newcastle and it was absolutely rammed constantly. And people would just come in and it was a good thing. People would trust me on what I would say what a good tune was. Kids would come into the shop with 50, 60 quid and just say, give us give us the best tunes. Yeah. And I'd pick the best tunes out for them. And I wouldn't try to screw them over and give them a couple of dodgy ones because I'd want them to come back and bring the money again yeah. sort of thing so I'd pick out their best tunes for them and they'd go home and go wow check these tunes out man he's great, great selection kind of thing and they'd come back yeah and and that in turn is helping just promote dance music innit it? it's just like oh, seeping right. out further and further you know they're going to then say to their friends check this out and as well as it's a business you're selling records but you're also spreading a a new music a scene making a scene building it in Newcastle I mean was there other record shops in that in the area or was that the main one there was one wee one but it's sort of they were the main shop but as soon as we opened up we kind of completely screwed them and yeah. we took over big time because they they were like an older crowd working in that shop whereas we were a younger crowd so when uh, the rave scene when the rave scene came in they didn't want anything to do with it where we took it and like totally took it underwater yeah on it, like you know I mean the money's coming through record shops back in the day would have been frightening it, it was absolutely sick I mean, the money, the ticket sales, especially when we were selling thousands of tickets for like a res and uh, the tape sales, when the tapes started. Oh, so man. Tapes, tapes were always there, but when they went big, sort of 92, 93, when I started doing my own res tapes and things, and then obviously for on run from there with the Judgment Day tapes started sort of 93, we used to sell thousands of them, man. Tickets just overflowing with cash constantly. Yeah. How is, is Resurrection and your other guest DJ spots is that just slowly building up over the early 90s like you're saying people are getting well, you in the shop well, the, trying the to book first you. Res was sort of May, May 1991 and it was about sort of two months beforehand when they came into the shop looking for you know I looking for ideas of which artists were big at the time because we were going to put some live bands on and they obviously they came to me to say who's the who's the one who's biggest selling what's the or who's got a new release coming out in the next sort of month or two because that was the main thing when you used to put a PA on at a gig you would put a PA on who was current at the time because yeah. I had a new single coming out or a new release or some you know something that you can promote on the back of it um, and they came in and said oh do you fancy DJing because obviously they thought get him under the thing because he'd sell the tickets he'd put the posters up yeah, yeah. and I was like what they were fucking rave I hated rave at the time I wasn't I was totally into house music techno acid and the actual thought of me playing rave music I was like I'll come along but I'm not playing rave music I'll come in and play techno so for the first few resurrections that's all I played uh -huh. more techno than uh, didn't used to play anything ravey um, but obviously it gradually got under my skin <laughs> is that 
the very first one you played was you involved in the very first one the first one yeah which was May 91 was uh, that in the Mayfair at the Mayfair aye and so, when, uh, they came in and just said would you do it and I said right you know aye why not and are so, you at that time at that was that probably your biggest gig at the time or had you done other big oh, sort I, of yeah I've done a few big house sort of events you know same sort of capacity I think the Mayfair held about 13, 1400 uh-huh. uh, so done a few things like that but nothing nothing on this scale yeah are you feeling confident as a DJ at that time are you thinking I'm a DJ this is what I'm I'm here yeah. to do I would, I would, yeah, I would say confident. Yeah, I, I never went. I wouldn't say I was ever nervous. Yeah, um, I just knew I could do it, so I would just be happily, you know, go up there and play some tunes because I wanted to hear. I wanted the, I wanted the people to hear the new stuff that I had. King, and yeah. it was one of them exciting feelings that you used to get. You used to love playing a tune to somebody and hear, watching them go, "Wow, this is amazing!" Yeah. That, was, that was the buzz you'd get out of it, you know. Knowing that nobody's even got this or heard this that, and stuff like yeah, that, you're going yeah, to hear yeah. it. Aye, and so it's techno. And are you listening to what other DJs are playing round about you, or are you just focused on what you're all about? I, I never used to listen to other DJs. I never have. Never used to listen to DJ mixes anybody because I didn't want to lose what I had in my hand. I didn't yeah. want to try to copy another person's style. But there was a couple of times when I'd be in res, having a walk around after my set, watching the crowd, and then there'd be another DJ go on and he'd play a particular tune that to me was rave and it was awful I didn't like it but I'd see the reaction off the crowd and go oh wow I so I'll get that I record that. I could play that next time I'm on kind of thing yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it, it bloomed from there kind of thing you know and ended up playing basically I'm going to have to play a whole rave set here because the tunes make the crowd go absolutely nuts and that's what I want to do are you pretty much becoming Resurrections sort of resident DJ sort of thing at that point it was pretty much from day one yeah because obviously they, they, they wanted me because I was me for the promotion side of things and then they also needed me because he used to come into the shop again all the time needing the information because they weren't a part of the rave scene they weren't a sort of the rock scene yeah. uh, the, the ran resurrection so they weren't clued up at all so they'd come to me and say alright who's who's the big DJ who, who we should put on who's the big act who we uh-huh. should put on Anything. so from there onwards right the way up to the ones in Scotland they used to always come to me for input on who was the best person to put on kind of thing that's amazing. I mean, I knew you were part of the fucking foundations of Res, but I never even thought that it was like much further than that, you know, as in right down to promotion, selecting the artists. And there's probably a lot of artists that fr- probably owe you a lot of, owe you a pint or two because you probably f- said you want to book them or you want to book him. Aye. Well, as I said, the list's quite quite long. It was the same thing the first, uh, Alex Trance's first gig at Res was because I was sitting in the office on a Monday after a res and I had his tape that he'd given me on the Saturday in me pocket and I hadn't actually listened to the tape <laughs> we were looking for a DJ because they were looking to, I think I had some guy that had in mind to do the first like the warm up set or whatever and he couldn't do it for whatever reason and they were pulling the hair out going oh we need somebody we need somebody and I said oh yeah there's this uh, techno trans DJ he's really good I've got this tape yeah have the tape and they listened to the tape and it was obviously good enough because they booked him for the next one but I well, he owes you. Well, he's probably bought you a few pints over the years. Uh, he <laughs> well, he couldn't believe it. He thought it was a wind up when he got the phone call the next day, kind of thing. Like, uh-huh. saying, oh, you're available. And he was like, sure, man. Because he thought it was me winding him up. But they were like, no, no, guy, give him the tape. And uh, it's, it's good. Like, you know, that's so brilliant. I mean, even looking at early flyers and all that, not just of Rez, but I Rez and that time, what I loved about it is it was like a real mixed batch of artists, you know, like from techno right through to maybe like the early hardcore kind of stuff you know yeah. 
and I, and I, I, I found that more interesting. Aye, they were great the early res lineups because it, it exposed the crowd to different sounds that they wouldn't yeah. have normally heard, which was great for the scene, you know. I mean, and, that, and that's the majority of that's coming out of your head because you're going, that tune's massive, that tune's massive, that's massive, and then they're putting the, the lineups together. Are you are you just getting bigger and bigger on Newcastle at that time, or is there other gigs coming in for further afield? It was just, I mean, it was mainly Newcastle, but once the first res hit up in Scotland, which was 92, I think, wasn't it? Like, was it the castle? Was it, was it that May? Was that about May 92? I'm not sure. It, was, it wasn't much longer after that when basically I was up in Scotland every weekend. Um, once I'd done the res, I think I was at the Carlton Studios in uh, Edinburgh. They got yeah. us up to do the Carlton Studios a couple of times. And then uh, it just exploded from then, you know. The Carlton Studios was some club back in the day, wasn't it? It was just madness. Oh, it was mad, but it was rammed, I used to go. <laughs> did they ever used to, I don't know if you remember, did they ever used to give you just cases of this damn, it's called damn beer? Fuck knows, I've never seen it since. They must have got... <laughs> pay, we must have get paid in damn lager every time we played they just give us cases I, of beer that's I, what I, I, remember. I remember I don't know because they, they, they had done the guys behind it had done like, I think it was Holocaust or Technodrome or something they would remember the earlier raves in uh, the uh, Ayrshire Fields I think they, they, they get, were involved in some other stuff and uh, some, some other business as well aye aye the guy <laughs> took his uh, it's massage parlours and all that kind of stuff <laughs> I've never been you know he, he did tell us I but they were good times so I mean is there a is there a point at these resurrections and then you're, you're starting to get uh, gigs in elsewhere what I'm trying to get is is there a point where the sort of penny drops and you're going fucking hell I'm you know I'm, I'm a DJ this is what I'm this is like my job almost mm. is it is it a time like that when it's like a, a, I don't know because you got to remember that at the time, sort of when Res went mental, sort of '93, when the well, when the rave scene went mental in '93, when I was up in Scotland every weekend, DJing, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight times a weekend, kind of thing. Yeah, I always drove back down the road because I had the shop in Newcastle. The uh -huh. shop always came first. I always had the shop to run, and obviously the start, the, the label started in '93, and we had the, the gigs running, the Judgment Day stuff as well. So the DJing was always like a a weekend hobby thing to me still and my day job was still running bass generator records in Newcastle Aye, right. so no matter what happened I had to be back at work the next morning at 8 o'clock so if I'm up in Inverness DJing on Friday night at 4 o'clock in the morning I had to think have I got time to get back into Newcastle because I've got to open the shop at 9 fucking hell and I did that for a good few years just I, like the party's over now you're switching into business mode or try to get to get to business I, mode I, <laughs> Fucking hell! This so is back, going to... back, back then, I didn't really call. I wouldn't say it was party mode because I didn't used to drink and get carried away on a weekend. I used to just go up and I was DJing kind of thing. It was later on. It was sort of '94 when the, the drinking and the partying went a bit overboard, and yeah. that, that became the priority over everything else. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of it kind of took over. You enjoyed that a wee bit too much. Well, I did because I liked being in the same frame of mind as the people in the club who were dancing to what I was playing, and that's mm -hmm. what I felt was important at the time. I had to be on that level. Yeah, trust me, I did. <laughs> <laughs> to the point where you were maybe on a different level. <laughs> you couldn't keep up with me. <laughs> well, that's another story. <laughs> well, I mean, so you, you mentioned your your shop, base generate records, and all that, and even Judgment Night. I mean, we can, we can talk about that. Is that are you just a natural extension for you? You're working in a record shop and you're thinking, I could start my own shop here because 
Ah. I know what he do. Uh, that was the same thing. It was there was, was the scene in Newcastle at the time the, when the rave sort of stuff came in in 1990, 1991. It killed the house music scene in Newcastle. Yeah. But then the house music scene came back around a bit in sort of 93 time. And the shop where I was at, it was kind of split. And it was hard to sell rave music and house music to the two lots of people because they clashed. They didn't get on. And yeah. you couldn't have a shop full of ravers while you were playing house music tunes to a, a house DJ or a house yeah. DJ playing rave tunes to a when the creature the house shops full of house people. And it, it was became too much of a clash and that's where I saw I could move away from here and take the rave with me to my own shop. Yeah. Because it, down the road and I'll sell everything ravey and use just sell everything house. And house. And we'll, not, we'll not step on each other's toes. And they went, aye, fair enough, we'll do that. It was a wee bit pretentious, more so from the house crowd, wasn't it? They kind of looked down on the ravers, didn't they? Looked down on the ravers, um, which it caused a lot of friction, you know. So, yeah. But to me, it was a business idea straight away. I was like, wow, I'm, I'm just going to walk away from this because I'm not just be taking all of the, the vinyl and the tape sales, it's the ticket sales as well. Because everybody's going to come to me. Because ah, you, you've seen it for years by working there, haven't you? You just, aye, you just know what it's worth. I, I mean, I suppose that's more a business idea than a music idea, isn't it? You're just thinking this is a, ca- a career here or a job or whatever. Well, I should get two minutes. I'll end this session. I'll send you another link and then we can start for, for the base generator bits. Right. Right. Hold on a minute. Fucking here we go. End this. I'll just send you another link, guy, right? Right, neither. That's brilliant, man. Get your clothes off for the next shot. Aye. <laughs> Do you want to get into the bed with us? There's, there's, there's some room. Look, there's some room there. Excel podcast. You've left. It's tracks, was it? That you left. And you started up Bass Generator Records. Is that what you called it straight away? No, oh, was, it, was called, it was called Looney Tunes, um, Looney Tunes. which were basically Nick the Warner Brothers logo was spelt it differently, and we had the uh, the coyote. Is like a, a, the logo kind of thing, but uh, w- there was a Warner Brothers cinema in Newcastle, and obviously they'd somebody must have driven past the window one day and seen it, and they grassed it up. And they had a <laughs> legal letter from Warner Brothers legal department telling us to cease and desist, uh, remove, remove. Uh, oh no, sorry, it was the Tasmanian Devil one. If that was the logo, uh, so they said I would need you to remove it, and I just spent about a thousand pound on carrier bags. Oh fuck full colour printed carrier bags and I had to bin them all <laughs> got it but I had a nice sign in the window I had to pull the sign down and all that and I just said you know what it is we're just going to call it Base Generator I know it's, that, a bit of a, it's a bit of a mouthful though when people are going to phone up and say you've got to say hello Base Generator Records on the phone but I said you know what it is people know it so I'm just going to use that well there's a thing I forgot to ask how did you get your DJ name how'd that come about it was um it was, I'd already used it on a couple of things um, as, as sort of a name for a night. We did a couple of electro nights, which I used the name Bass Generator on. Um, but it was mainly the, uh, when it was the first thing Res when they came into the, sh- the shop and said, oh, because at the time I used to DJ around Newcastle just as Guy from Tracks. Everybody knew us as Guy from Tracks. I'd be on the flyer as Guy from Tracks, but normally playing house music. And they said, oh, you know, we've got this rave kind of thing going on. Do you really want to have guy from tracks when people know you from tracks, but you play house music? And I was like, I suppose I could come up with a, a name. And there's a bass generator thing just had stuck in my head. And it was me and Sneaky. I was standing in the shop one day and it was, an, I think it was a vinyl 
uh, came in from the States by Dynamics 2 and it was like no tune and it was called Bass Generator and I said you know what it is just, just call it Bass Generator I'm just yeah. DJ Bass Generator why not because at the time that was the kind of stuff I was into all the heavy bass sort of techno stuff from uh, Warp Records and things like that so just went yeah we'll, keep, we'll, we'll use that and it's stuck you know it's a cool name because it kind of conjures up shit in your head you know before you even hear or whatever you know, it sounds it sounds like a good solid kind of name, doesn't it? That's the thing on the on the first res flyer. It said plus bass generator at the bottom. It had the list of whoever the artists were. The it was scientists and enjoy and whoever else bizarring or whatever. And then at the bottom, it had plus bass generator. And there was loads of people that came in the shop afterwards and said they thought it was like a new sound system thing that had been added. <laughs> and there was like something a new bass speaker underneath the stage called the bass generator that was going to uh, the place on the night time. I went, yeah. <laughs> Remember in all the early rave flyers, it almost advertised the sound and lights more than the DJs, didn't it? It was like <laughs> million watt sound system, amazing lasers, and then it was like everybody's names is just like below Aye. that. <laughs> <laughs> right, get a priorities right. So finding it, finding a pitch for your record shop and all that. Did you did you spot somewhere right away, or did you see something and it's opened quite fast? Or it was it was it was it was a guy who used to run. Um, he used to sell sound and lighting gear like speakers and lighting systems and he used to hire DJ stuff out and he had a shop just down the road from where Trax was and he only it was like a two floor shop and he only used the top floor and he said you can have the basement for like next to now if you want it and I was like well people know the shop already because you know he's in town I thought well you know it'll do it'll be alright it's 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 literally down the road from Trax Records because I didn't want it to be too far away because people would still call into Trax first yep. before yep. coming down to me anything you know but uh, it was an ideal spot dark little dingy basement meant I could get a big sound system in there and we'd play the tunes as loud as we want we wouldn't piss any of the neighbours off Yeah, that was a problem with tracks there was a restaurant above tracks and we used to get complaints all the time from the people upstairs saying you know you can't play that you can't play yeah, this yeah. music they're fucking eating that man <laughs> <laughs> so I mean th I mean this is the early 90s and all that you must have been chucking out vinyls and tapes fucking by the bucket load Aye, t-shirts, the clothing we've started. Ah, oh, fuck yeah, merch and everything. Aye, and and is this just things a necessity? You're going, let's let's get t-shirts in here. Let's let's fuck. You know, are, are you just adding things like a shop? That, aye, just constantly. Aye, just anything that we thought of. You right? We did the slip mats, jackets, bags, just everything that people would want. Just thought, yeah, do it. Was, is is there also a group there helping you? Or is it all pretty much on your shoulders? It's pretty much me doing everything. Yeah, um, I, I managed the shop, did all the buying did all the accounts and then on a weekend I was away DJing all weekend fucking hell man because that's can you imagine trying to do all that now you just you can see for the amount of work it is in it you're just like fuck me you spend all day now just on the marketing yeah actually doing the rest of the work at the same time you couldn't you couldn't do it you know I know it's fucking funny. If I look back in hindsight, I should have had more people in helping us. Yeah. But I used to just be one of those guys who just, I'd do it myself. I'd just do it myself. Uh -huh. No matter how many hours it took, I'd just do it, you know? As, as the res has grown, your kind of name's grown, DJing fucking every weekend. And at that time, you're like you said, sometimes you're doing three, four gigs a night and all that because of the all nighters and stuff like that. Did seven one night. Fucking hell. On Saturday night, apparently it was an, un uh, an unofficial world record set doing seven DJ spots in one night. Wait, all all over the country. It was well, it was all in Scotland, I. Fucking hell! It was you it was a thing. I, thing was it was Rachel Stevens from S Club Seven has the record in the record books 
of doing seven gigs in one night, but that was only doing like five, ten minute slots uh-huh. in an official world record. And I was saying I would have had it, but you obviously had to prove it to them. So I would have had to keep the flyers and the proof that I'd done it, which at the time I didn't, you know. Yeah. I could have been in the record books for a good few years. So Rachel would have had to do it to knock us off. <laughs> Is that you getting in doing an hour set? Or are you... Aye, aye. So seven started, hours... Started, started in under-18s in Glasgow. I think we did like five to six and then ended up doing the full bar, seven to eight. In between, we did a run through up through Glasgow and somewhere else across Edinburgh. We did uh, the Forum and then back again somewhere else and then the full bar and it was seven gigs in the one night. Amazing. I think... See, just with, with that kind of work ethos, you know what I mean? Just work, work, working. Even when you're working in the shops, people knowing who you are, knowing your music, get music from you and all that. You're, you're kind of ingraining yourself into just the fucking folklore almost. And then I, I think, I, I remember I was on tour in fucking Germany somewhere and I'd go at the book train spotting and I remember reading and they mentioned you. I'm sure it was train spotting or was it... I think it was Trainspotting. Either that or it was the Acid House. It was the Acid House. But I think you get a mention in Trainspotting as well because he talks about the Count Studios and going to see DJs and stuff. Um, but I, I, Acid House, I remember the film Acid House he men- mentioned, Bass General. I remember I, it was Spuddy. Spuddy was outside somewhere on a roundabout or something. That's right. Outside going that Bass Generator. It was fucking sound. Aye. Now that, that for me, even like watching that, I was so fucking chuffed seeing that because I was just like, that yeah, is fucking... He used to be sitting backstage. I used to do his fucking nothing talking to him some nights. Uh, see, young. I used to meet him at the Count Studios. You probably met him there and uh, forgot. He used to come sit backstage and all that. Well, I think at the time I thought he was just one of the fucking people who worked for Res. I thought he was one of the sound guys or something. Yeah. <laughs> just, he was there backstage chatting all the time. It was the guy, Kenny Mason, the promoter of Count Studios that used to introduce me to him at the start. And he's like, he's writing a book. He's just, it's all right if he sits backstage and just hangs out. And you're like, ah, right, cool. And he just sat quiet in a corner. And, and the conversation was just, all right, mate. Maybe talk about football. That was it. And everybody else was just getting mad with it. And he would just kind of like observe. Yeah. He wasn't really like involved in it. He was just kind of watching. Mm-hmm. Which, which I always thought was kind of weird. And at some point you're going, well, fuck, is this guy a DS or something? What's going on here? <laughs> I never used to leave him alone. He used to be, like you say, he used to be sitting sort of watching everybody and I would just go and sit next to him and talk his ear off. <laughs> is this after he's released Trainspotting or before when he's oh, still... Before, I... Yeah. So when you when you see that in the film or whatever, and I'm sure you get, I need to double check, but I'm sure you get a, a mention in an actual Trainspotting in the book. Are you just are you just buzzing on that because it just shows that you're part of the fucking foundations of that I, kind of scene? I, what did it feel like? Just great. I mean, it's it's the fact that you know you look back like sort of a few years after the scene finished, and then you speak to people who all they have to say about is the tapes. It was mainly the tapes they got everywhere. All the school kids used to trade the tapes between yeah. each other, and it, it just in Newcastle, it was across the whole from Newcastle up over the edge of Scotland. I'd go up to Elgin or somewhere, or you know, crazy places, Peterhead and all that, and everybody would be there saying, "Oh, I know you because I used to get all your tapes from back in the day." And that's yeah. all we used to listen to was bass generator tapes, and it was like you'd come back after school, you'd go to school, you're walking on and listen to bass generator tapes, and it was like that was the thing where you thought you were everywhere. 
Yeah. And, and a bit, you're also saying, I hope you bought it and you never recorded it. <laughs> that was the thing. Everybody was trading them, wasn't it? Yeah, that's it. It was a currency. But then again, your tapes and all that was like internet. actually sold. I mean, you're talking hundreds of thousands of tapes. And you think each one of those tapes could have been copied 10, 20, right. 30 times. And then you've got all the copy ones that they used to do in the boroughs and all that, man. There must have been millions of tapes going yeah. But that, that was that was the equivalent to a download now, isn't it? Like downloads right. fucking endless, like the cassettes right. where obviously it was a physical product, but it was just copied and copied and shared and until it's just more hiss than music. I I mean, but then even at that, I even remember as a punter getting like bootleg copies of DJ sets or live acts, and the copy was shit, but you still enjoyed it because you really fucking were into the music and you're listening. Hearing the new, hearing the new music, aye. And you're hearing the fucking the crowd and all that. I, I think it was like the first ever big. It was a Fantasia fair down south, Castle Donington or something like. That. It was like Rat Pack with the fucking crowd. I think it was like a New Year recording. Fucking mm. blew my mind just with the crowds. Yeah. Like, fucking hell, man! And then playing like a res and actually hearing a crowd. That yeah. You're just thinking, how how is this possible? Mm-hmm. It was just constant noise, whistles, horns. And it's just, like was if, you, if you'd never been to it and you could hear this on a tape, you would totally want to be there, wouldn't you? Aye, 100%. And so you're, you're, you're fucking, you're riding the wave of rave, like many is what we're right, but you're, I, I, I'm going to say almost kind of like the figurehead of fucking rave, almost. And then it, when did you start developing or pushing more the kind of harder sound? Because you think a bass generator now, it's more the harder edge. And I know you've done sets, and we've spoke about it before, where you've played the tallow right through and stuff like that. Actually, one of the sets that you played at 1994 is one of my favourites. You started with Italian house, and mm-hmm. you built it right up to fucking hardcore. But when did you start focusing more just on like fucking fast and furious? Um, just got a bit bored with seeing this, playing the same stuff a lot of the time and a lot of the clubs like you say my pr- main priority is the dance floor you uh-huh. know was it like reses people are like saying oh, you used to play like an Italian tune and then drop a Gabba tune in and then play a techno tune it's like because I was just constantly watching the dance floor and if I played two Italian tunes and the dance floor start to go, sort of lose it a bit you know that you don't want to play a third one so you play something else yeah. and I just sort of noticed the faster stuff sort of 94, 95 well in 94 when the faster stuff started to have more of a reaction on the dance floor and people would go more mental the faster the stuff you played yeah, yeah. he was like oh I'm going to have to up the stakes a little bit yeah. yeah and the music got faster and faster and faster you know it was people weren't happy at 170 anymore it had to be 180, 190 that's fucking crazy speeds isn't it it, well, when it, when it got really crazy, it was into two hundreds and two forties and two fifties. The kind of stuff Smith was playing, like you know what I mean. So too much to play over and over again. But you would drop that one track, and people would go, "Ah, my God, I was yeah. mad!" You'd have to think, right? I've just killed dance floor playing that. I'm gonna have to put some of the bouncy <laughs> spray on to get, get them back. <laughs> but I mean, was it, it's almost as if you're pushing barriers as well, just to see how mad you could take it, to see how how the punters would react, kind of thing. But it was the way the English music had gone at the time, sort of, you know, back in 93, when the breakbeat stuff, people in Scotland weren't interested in that, really, yeah. with it. Um, but then, obviously, Scott Brown was the main man. He came along with the bouncy stuff. Yeah. Um, that changed. 
everything because yeah. everybody just what that's the stuff they liked that's the what they wanted to hear but obviously again it got faster when the Rotterdam stuff started 94-ish got faster and faster and you, you had to ride that wave kind of thing you know yeah I, as what I guess as well you're, you're again you're still on the cutting edge because working in a record shop you're seeing what tunes are fucking flying out the door so you're saying that's what people are wanting so I, exactly. I, get I, know, I know what was selling uh, the other point of view is obviously I'd also know who was on before us if I was going to a gig so if I knew Tom Wilson was on before me playing fucking cheese I'm not going to play any cheese in my set I'm going to play hard same yeah. other way around it could have been somebody on before me I could be on after Scott Brown so I'm not going to go on and play Scott Brown style so uh-huh. it, it, I'm going to have to play faster sort of thing so that would you know, sort of dictate what I was going to play in certain venues yeah especially you... Rezzers sorry I'd say especially like the big ones like Rezzers I'd have to think right who's on before me you know I can't I'm going to have to you know think about what they're playing to what I'm playing because I'm not going to go on and play the same stuff as somebody else yeah you mentioned sorry you mentioned Sneaky Eye is working with an MC something that you enjoyed or is it just something that came out of working with pals or whatever it was something I knew I needed to do from hearing other DJs sort of at the time I knew I wanted to have an MC with me because I used to be sort of the reggae reggae scene as well and I know what a reggae MC would sound like over a reggae set like a real MC sort of thing isn't it so I was thinking it would be great to have that in a rave set well at the time sort of techno set but then building into the rave set and I knew Sneaky Eye would be ideal for it because I knew what his patter was like and I'd heard him emceeing over sort of reggae stuff before and he was into hip hop and rapping and stuff and I said to him one that's what I said do you fancy coming and doing this for me and I said it'll be a laugh trust me it'll be a laugh yeah. and he got a right buzz out of walking out onto that stage and just dropping daft fucking reggae sort of lines yeah, yeah. and they were all like because they had never heard anything like that before either and they were like fucking hell what's this man this yeah. is mental he's playing mental fucking tunes and that MC's off his head <laughs> <laughs> a marriage made in heaven it was, it was a great match eh? it was it was a great match I never thought about the reggae angle but now you mention it it does kind of make sense because his kind of MC style was really sort of laid back it wasn't blah, 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 blah. it was just really fucking laid back uh, and amongst the madness that you're playing it was just hyping the crowd up and uh, just occasional occasional silliness you know aye uh, brilliant man you're I mean are you seeing it's, I know it's all highs and things are rising but in the kind of mid 90s things started to lose its way are you seeing that or maybe we should talk about your own nights first because they, they were fucking massive they were is massive that, is that again you're seeing what Rez is doing and going I could fucking put my own night on with the Judgment Day things yeah uh-huh. um, I knew it was so when we did the first one in 1993 it's Rez had finished in 92 when they, they decided not to do any more at the Mayfair Newcastle and they were just going to concentrate on doing the big ones up in Scotland ah and okay there was no clubs in Newcastle playing the harder sort of music because Res was the hard place. Everybody would go to Res. It was on every three weeks. Everybody would save their money up and go to Res every three weeks. So the people who weren't into that harder sound were going to the club nights and they were typically playing Italian and yeah. like sort of borderline happy house kind of stuff. So that had taken over in Newcastle. So when Res finished, it was just all cheese. All the clubs were playing cheese. And I was like, we need a fucking hard night in Newcastle. I'm going to do one and uh, approached a few of the venues and they wouldn't touch it they weren't interested at all because they knew that kids come to clubs they don't buy drinks so they're not going to make any money on the night I was like yeah but I'll pay you a bigger higher fee to cover the loss of the bar money and they were like oh never thought of that 
Yeah. So you know, you, were, you were playing ridiculous high fees to get some of these venues, but it kept the management happy because they were making that money on the night. You know. Yeah. Uh, we, we found a wee club. It was only two hundred and fifty capacity, and it sold out the first one. Uh, we did a few there and then obviously knew this was going to be massive we need to find a bigger venue so we went into Newcastle and approached a couple of the venues to see you know can we do this but we, we need a, you know like a thousand people minimum was that did you move to the university quite because uh, I'm sure it was a university I came down and played a couple of times the two universities in Newcastle we moved to the first one one of the universities and it was alright but they weren't really into what we were doing they were kind of not keen about it but we went to the, the main Newcastle University and they were totally into the idea uh, they were buzzing on the you know to give with a venue and it was a bigger bigger hall as well it was 1200 capacity kind of thing brilliant and again DJing working in a record shop and just saying ah fuck it let's just be a promoter as well we'll fling that on my shoulders and run a label and running a label so and again the label's coming out of you just going I like these tunes are you starting to think or meet other guys giving you tapes this is a tune that I've made is that how the label's coming about or are well, you thinking was, about doing production it was well I'd already had the label running I'd just done a couple of daft releases myself but it was mainly um, it was Scott Brown in fact oh, sorry it was it was the res when they did the first event gig in 1993 they asked me to do a tune for the, an album that they were going to release and uh, no sorry they asked us to do a DJ mix for the album that they were going to release and they've got me and Carl Cox and somebody else were going to do like a, I think it was a half hour mix and they release it in time but they couldn't get the licensing on the tracks because ah, I think okay. I picked about uh, I don't know about 12 tracks and I said what I wanted to do instead of doing a DJ mix is I was going to sample all the 12 tracks and make a 30 minute tune out of those tracks so it wasn't like a DJ mix it would just be a 30 minute track using all of those tracks bits out of each one of them and they said yeah, yeah that sounds amazing we'll do that so I went into a studio made this track and then uh, it was ready for release and they couldn't get their uh, the, the, the authorization on some of the, the they couldn't get in touch with some of the artists or some of the license the tracks so yeah. they said the whole thing's it. so it wasn't just me it was some of Cole Cox's they couldn't do either so they said we'll scrap the idea and I said well you know what it is I could take everything that I've put together for that 30 minute mix and make a sort of six seven minute tune out of it which yeah. is what the event was and I said I'm going to release it as a single um, and they said yeah yeah just do it whatever so that's when I released the event and that's how that, that came about but it was the same time I got a demo off Scott I think again I was I was I think it was the Carlton Studios I've been chatting him up there and he had a dat and he said oh I've got this tune that I've been putting together I, I want to release it on a different label like do you want to have a listen to it and I was straight away I was like yeah it's a banger release that so the, the, the event came out and straight after it would put uh, Violator and uh, the experiment out from Scott brilliant and were they just fucking flying out the door as soon as you put them, pressed them up like, it was unbelievable um, <laughs> did you go into this a studio was that a studio in Newcastle somebody you knew I, or how, how did that come about the guy so I knew, you remember MIC they did that tune Bounce 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 it rings a yeah. bell I probably have it was a big in back in the day so it was it was him me mate Dave he had a studio set up and uh, he would just do the, the engineering work I'd go in with the ideas and uh, that's how that, that happened like and is it a time when the fucking labels fucking everything you put out is it just flying sort of thing it's still a big vinyl it was a time on it because everybody was just buying anything because they had the base generator sign on it they were just yeah that must be good we'll buy it you know uh-huh. was you no fucking paranoid working in that shop with all that cash and all that is there no any fucking heavy guys in Newcastle you're going I need to wash myself here uh, <laughs> extra I, I locks in the doors I hated to see it but I had uh, I was well connected at the time so I wasn't worried about getting any uh, <laughs> <laughs> you were really a gangster <laughs> <laughs> nobody nobody would mess with us basically oh that's good man that's good 
So, I mean, the bu- the bubble's going to pop at some time. All these things happening, nothing lasts I forever. I never thought it would. <laughs> I, but, but, I never thought it would. I was going to ride that wave to the very end. Aye, I, I think we all did, you know. And I, when did you think, or when did you start seeing things kind of start to get sticky? What kind of year are you putting it on? 97. Um, it was sort of the end of 96. The, we see, obviously, I was resident in the football at the time. In the football, struggling to sell out every weekend where it used to, right way through the 94, 95, it would sell out every weekend, no no matter. Same with the reses, the last couple of reses, they weren't selling out. And you just knew this is something funny. It was, it was again, everybody puts it down to the music. There was too much happy hardcore and it wasn't going down very well. Um, but I think it was also just a switch. People started people getting into the house here stuff and all that. I, what did that change, didn't got, they? People got older. That's the main thing you ought to think. Yeah. Most of these scenes, I think it worked out and it has like a four year lifespan. And then the people get bored with it and they move on. People settle down, they have kids and stuff, they stop, they stop going out. And then, you know, you, you need a new breed of people to come into it, which yep. weren't. And that's when it started to dip, you know. But to say that, it dipped in Scotland, but it was getting busier in Newcastle. Because, you know, I could see it dying out in Scotland a bit, but Newcastle, the Judgment Day events were still selling out every week. And we were still doing them on a Thursday night sometimes. We'd sell, a, sell the venue out on a Thursday night, you know. That's mad, isn't it? Brilliant. But obviously, as I say, the last res, whatever that was, was at 97 or whatever. And then they did the couple of Magic Kingdom gigs, uh, which weren't, you know, they weren't full. And then we stepped in and thought we'll do the Judgment Day of the Hogwarts 97. We tried to bring it back around. We did a massive lineup. It was just all the names everybody knew, all the locals, all the big bands, all the big DJs. And we thought this was going to be a great, you know, Hogwarts party. And it, it wasn't even half full. So we knew then. It's it's just a big trouble, yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, and that's a big fucking investment as well, putting an event on, isn't it? Was I lost a lost a fair bit of money on that one? I, I mean, that's the thing, and it? it's like it's great when it's great, but when you lose, you fucking lose hard on, especially yeah. events, isn't it? it really do I? Because <laughs> obviously we did the we did the Hogwarts one, and then we thought we'll get M8 involved because they were going to do a big promotion on it, and we're trying to try to revive the scene kind of thing. We'll put a massive lineup on for Easter. Um, we really went overboard on the budget thinking with all this right. line and all this promotion it'll sell out this will be busy and again it didn't and we lost a shitload of money again fuck so, uh, and when when did you when did you when, was there a period when you just went ah fuck it I'm out it's over for me or are you just gradually getting tired of the scene or is it a turning point because again in this podcast guy I want to talk about the highs and the lows kind of thing if, if you're yeah. cool to talk about it is it it happened it got um, we know Scotland by the sort of oh the fucking internet I can't remember the whole story about everywhere that you know most of the big nights the internet connection's kind of up and down here yeah right Aye, back now. Cutting off there. Aye, back now. Yeah, but I, as I say, what was happening? But we were still busy as hell down in Newcastle. But again, it got a sort of the. I'm not going to say the start of '99 because that was still really busy. It was about the middle of 1999 when it eventually was the last of the Judgment Days at the university. There was some we had a bit of bother with some uh, local kids causing trouble every one of the gigs, and the guy, the manager, said, "Look, I've had enough. This is going to have to come to an end. We'll let you have one more." Um, and I said, all right, fair enough. It'll still be okay. It'll still be busy. I'll just find a new venue. But as soon as I left to find a new venue, nobody in Newcastle would touch it. The, the whole mention of rave, the police, they knew they were going to move the police. They just said, it's not happening. Like So I couldn't get another venue. And that's when I was saying to myself, 
it's all gone wrong now because the record shop had shut. That when we released ran out on the record shop in sort of when was that again? It was about '98 sort of time. And uh, there was no shops I could move to in Newcastle. The rents and the rates were gone absolutely ridiculous. And the amount of vinyl we were selling had dipped. The tape sales had dipped. And uh, the ticket sales, obviously, because there was no events. And it just the money wasn't there. And I had to say to myself, look, I'm going to have to shut the shop and I'm not reopening another uh-huh. shop. There's no, there's not enough money in us to do it. I've got the other things. I've got the gigs. I've got the label. Um, I've got the tape sales in Scotland still going well. But the shop in Newcastle itself is going to have to shut, you know. Uh, but then, as I say, couldn't get a venue in Newcastle either. So by the end of 1999, it was pretty much dead and buried. There was yeah. there was nothing going on. I wasn't getting any DJ bookings. The shop was shut. The gigs had finished. Nobody was buying tapes anymore. The label had finished kind of thing. And it had all stopped abruptly. It went from really high within six months to nothing. Yeah. And it was a backlash, wasn't it? It was like the media, ma- like news, magazines, everything kind of just turned against Raven. Like, as if this was the fucking the problems to the answer to everybody's problems was get rid of the rave scene and it's because of the rave scene and this and I, I really just felt it was unfairly fucking bastardised wasn't it as a scene you know like it wasn't cool anymore and you're just wait a minute a lot of problem with the drugs obviously the police were on top of all this and they'd known about this for a while because they'd been building up sort of a case to stop the rave events happening in Newcastle and they even pointed out that when there was a rave on the two weeks leading up to the gig the shoplifting offences around Newcastle went through the roof because kids were coming in stealing stuff from town to sell to buy rave tickets oh. we had all of this in a big <laughs> a big dossier for the reason why they were stopping all the raves in Newcastle uh, it's mad, isn't it? ridiculous. But then, I, mean, I mean, that's, that's probably it's probably the truth. I, I know, I know. But then, it's not like anything changed because they just fucking took the rave name away, and and super clubs fucking came about, yeah, and DJs cool. started getting football players' wages and everything get expensive at the bar and all that. And you're going, this is just a fucking rave with people all dressed up and being fucking snobby. What's you know, like there's nothing changed here. There's still yeah. a a fucking dance music scene. Uh, some, of the, some of the nights you'd go to were just basically raves but on paper it wasn't a rave aye exactly because <laughs> it, it ticked all the boxes uh, but obviously I, I, people said to me oh you know at the time you could have you know changed converted into doing trance music and stuff like that and I said but it just didn't give me the buzz we yeah. did a tr- we had the judgement day we had a trance room at the back in the, you know for about probably about a year and it was never busy. The music was never excited as at the time. I mean, I liked listening to trance, but yeah. not. I would never have thought about playing it. And I didn't see the crowd reacting to it the way yeah. ravers reacted to rave music. So it just didn't give me the buzz. And I just said, you know, I'm not in the house music scene in Newcastle. It's already got people running that. I'm not going to go in there and try to step on toes and say, oh, I'm going to start doing house nights because it's going to cause too much friction. So, yeah. you know, I'm just, you know, just going to have to call it a day kind of thing. Did you... What I was going, <laughs> I remember, I played at a few of your retirement parties. I, remember, I specifically remember you deciding you've had enough and you were retiring. Uh, when was that? What year was that? Oh God, doing hitters with a year. Um, it was early two thousands, maybe or something like that. Or? No, no. That, I mean, there was nothing going on in the early two thousands. Yeah. It was when I decided it was about two thousand and nine, maybe two thousand and ten, when I right. said I had enough. Um, I just wasn't getting the buzz off it anymore. Um. It was it was one of those things when the, the it, when it sort of reappeared when the, the colours guys started doing the big fantasias and the things at the Brayhead Arena and that and you went from playing nothing to back in front yeah. of ten thousand people 
I was like, wow, this is amazing. The first couple of gigs I did, I played an old school set because people are based generally old school set. But then I was like, this new hardstyle stuff would come along. And I was like, but I don't want to play this old school stuff. I've done it for years and it's boring. And this new music's fucking amazing. I want to play this. Yeah. And I said, I'm going to play this from now on. And that's all I'm interested in. I'm not doing any more old school sets unless it's something special, some special night. If I'm DJing, I'm playing hardstyle stuff. And it absolutely went mental. But that only went on for a couple of years and it got to that point when, you know, I'm, I'm hitting 30 year old and I'm thinking, oh, sorry, this was in 2009, so I'm hitting nearly 40 year old and I'm thinking, I'm just too old for all this coming yeah. up here every night, jumping around like a lunatic and then I've got to drive back down the roads, get up and run a business. And I just said, you know, I'm just going to have to see I've had enough of it, you know. But it's hard walking away. That's it. Ah, I was going to say, man, it's hard. I always said I'm retiring, but I'll still come up and DJ occasionally for mates running a big thing, or it was yeah. a charity gig or something massive. So it got to the point where it was every next gig was always going to be <laughs> the biggest gig ever, and it's going to be massive. You've got to play it, and they're on the phone going, "Please, can I come and DJ?" I'm like, "Oh no, man, I'm fucking retired. I'm going, and I'll do one more." <laughs> But like you're saying, you know, like it is, it, it's a big part of your life and you can't just fucking close the door on it. Mm. And I think it's always going to be there. You know, like, even if you went like that to me right now, right, from today onwards, I'm not doing another gig. It's, <laughs> it's impossible to say that, isn't it, man? Because it's such a huge part of your life and always will be. I love doing it. That's the thing. It's like taking something away from you that you love and you realize you don't have to have it taken away. Yeah. Why have it taken away? But, you know, I'll still stick with the same thing. I wouldn't want to be up there DJing two, three, four times a weekend. I mean, I'm happy doing two, three, four a year. That's, yeah. that's my input. I think physically and mentally it'd be impossible to do fucking two, three, four a night and all that again. They, were, they did get to a point now and again in sort of, I'm trying to think back again when it all kicked off in sort of 2008 when I was doing two or three gigs a weekend again. And again, just at the time, it was a bit too much. You know, you, you weren't just doing the big ones at Brayhead, you were doing wee clubs and stuff dotted about as well. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, it wasn't. The hangovers two last a good three days, four days and all day, That's they? the main problem. I definitely couldn't do anything like a two, do a gig on a Friday night and then do a couple on a Saturday because you'd just be absolutely bust off the Friday and the Saturday yeah. you'd just be there crying going, no, I can't do it. I know. I always think, as, as good as the big gigs are, I always think you need a wee a wee club night and po I'm going to even possibly say a wee shitty club night just uh, so as you realise when a gig's good it's fucking good some, some of my best nights like if you'd asked me a crappy question and said oh guy what was your favourite gig of the 90s you know everybody'd say oh he's going to say event 3 or whatever you know what I mean it wasn't some of my best nights of the 90s were ones where I'd drive up to some cheesy little fucking town hall in the middle of nowhere and there'd be 60 70 people there and it would kick off uh, and they were their nights that you got into the vibe and it was just they were the nights that were the best ones that stand out in my mind the wee ones you know yeah. a wee club with a couple hundred people in sometimes they were the best nights I think because everybody's you're just all in it together yeah, right. you know yeah, I, I. No the bishops up in Elgin that yeah. was a favourite of mine I used to love going up there because like you say it was a wee tiny club low ceiling hot and sweaty but you were right in the front of them all and you had to go from the, the door at the back you had to fight your way all the way through the crowd to get the front you had to say hello to everybody because everybody could see you come through the crowd you get yeah. the DJ box and it would just always kick off like it was always great I think all those sort of towns and all that I think they just appreciate you taking a fucking journey up there 
And it's like they, they do appreciate they, they know how fucking far it is, and they're just like, well, here we go, we're fucking partying tonight. There's a lot of them couldn't believe that I used to drive up. You know, they used to think every DJ used to come, used to be flying up from London or whatever. And I'm yeah. like, well, I'm not from Newcastle. You know what I mean? It's it's yeah, it's a five hour drive, but like fuck it, I've got to be back to work in the morning. So, Mate, that's what's going on. Even now, and all that, when you're like, Atlas and I need to drive down the road, and then fucking hell, you're just like, fuck me, man. You must be fucked by the time you get home. You know, just right. shattered. I mean, now that's me driving, but you got to think back in the nineties. I always had a driver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Driving us. So that was never, never the thought, you know. Aye, but even but, uh, that, you're traveling in the car or anything. Aye, like, it was all the way. Fucking hell, man! Exactly. Half the party was in the car. Aye, <laughs> aye half the. I mean, how many? But I maybe know you, but I just remember like fucking New Year's or whatever, or what, you'd be on a on a fucking motorway somewhere sometimes, fucking partying uh, when the bells are coming because you're traveling from a gig to a gig or something like that. Just uh, mad shit. <laughs> And a wee convoy or something. <laughs> I mean, we kind of spoke about it when, you know, like, it was the same for me, like, the Fantasias really kind of fucking opened up my eyes to, like, it was almost like a new generation of kids who'd fucking missed it first time round and listened to the tapes and just went, this is my shot to do it. And it kind of got me excited in it. And then, I guess, like, in a hard house and hard styles and stuff like that it gives you that you buzz again to keep going and, and then we, we can find ourselves now when there's a ma- there's still a massive old school scene you know there's, there's, there's the reses came back it's fucking dra- dragging in thousands there's loads of brilliant old school nights up and down the country and all that how are you feeling about but that, but that chance again, because we're all kind of getting a second chance to kind of enjoy it a wee bit more this time, almost. It's one of them things. I just want to see how far it goes, because you know I'm not expecting it to like become massive again. But it would be nice if it did. You know, imagine having four years of doing this. It just depends what the sort of turnouts like. A lot of these people who are going to these are the older crowd, but then you're getting all the younger ones who are all saying, you know, I was too young at the time, so I couldn't go to these gigs, but now I can. And it's, will they get into it enough to say, I'm going to go to the next one and the next one and the next one? That's, you know, I'm fingers crossed, I hope it does. But, yeah. you know, it's, it's a big ask, especially in the times where things are with money. afford to have all these gigs. They're not be really happening where they're out every weekend, kind of thing, you know what I mean? I nobody can afford that just now, and and I also no. think I've been at a couple of gigs where it's been like a kind of younger, you know, I've been there like as a punter, and it's a younger, younger, younger audience, and and it is still very much like they're filming the gig rather than uh, enjoying yeah. it. It's a bit of a weird situation, and sometimes I think if the kids come to like an old school night and they see everybody around them, nobody's holding a phone up all night, you know, maybe it's certain bits for favourite tunes, but. People are there to share the experience mm. with their pals and listen to the DJ and all that. Mm. And maybe they're learning because I still think they just, I don't know, maybe it's a generation. I don't think they're just obsessed by music as much as what our generation was. Uh, I think it's because at the time to us, it was a new sound. Yeah. It was a new sound, whereas to them, it's you know it's it's kind of been around. So it's it's not like an exciting new sound to them. Aye, aye, because we were hearing things for the first time, wasn't it? The aye. first time you hear a sound and a snare roll or a fucking drum part, and you're like, wow, what is that? Where, where do you see things going? Do you think, do you think there's only a few years left in it, or are you just not giving a fucking enjoying it? 
just what as I say, not really giving a fuck, just to play play how it goes. See where see where we go. As I say, I'm, I'm happy just doing a few gigs a year. Whatever, you know, your stuff, these reses come off. There's not much else going on, you know, because yeah. you can't afford to have too many gigs. If you start ripping the arse out of it and trying to people start trying to do club nights every night, sort of thing, every weekend, it'll just not happen because people can't afford to come up. I know. It's not just yes, the ticket prices, which you know, the ticket prices are crazy now. You've got to think of drinks prices and getting the places. It's it's an expensive thing just to go to a night now. Yeah. You could fucking buy a holiday somewhere. For the price of night like as I say, right? It was a judgment day. <clears throat> things in Newcastle, the tickets were only like eight or nine quid at the time. Yeah, there wasn't a bar, so you just drink water all night, so it was free. Free, you know, it was not really costing you any money to get there. And it was in Newcastle city centre, so all the locals were basically walking home afterwards. So it, that's a cheap night out. You couldn't, you couldn't even imagine. Uh, do you know what? All the people I've spoke to, I've never actually thought about it in that that way. It was a cheaper night back then, not just because of the ticket price, like for exactly what you said. Did you used to buy drinks. I know, it's <laughs> fucking... Yeah, I, yeah, these days is going to cost you eight or nine quid, isn't it? I know, it's <laughs> frightening, man. <laughs> I remember I remember the Metro and Solcoats fucking sold pints of water for a pound. Didn't and they shut, they shut the water off in the fucking toilets and all that, and you're going, this is fucking crazy, chap, man, this is mental. But that was probably aimed out of desperation because nobody was buying well, they, any fucking drink. They needed to get money in and all that thing. Fuck's sake, man. Because they've seen Joe making all the money for the tapes. Brilliant. So, I just, I mean, rounding things up, you've got, uh, also there's, there's a, a good few gigs coming up. And it, and it was, for me, it was great when we went to that Linda's farm and, and I was looking out for you I couldn't see it then I spotted you in the dance floor having a fucking time of your life and honestly I was just it was brilliant to see because I I totally get it you know you were there with your missus and, it, and it's now becoming a night out and a fun night out Aye. and when you can make a gig almost like a fucking night out I think that makes it even more better it takes the pressure off things doesn't it well, it, and, it always has it always has to me See, from the days of the early reses, it used to surprise everybody because when me and Sneaky I'd come off stage at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock or whatever, we didn't used to run and get the security to take her backstage and then go off and we're fucking to the hotel in a bus yeah. or whatever. We used to just fucking climb over the barrier and fucking go wandering around this crowd. And just, and just enjoy everybody. yourself. Enjoy yourself, just chat everybody, and everybody like oh, shaking your hands and getting. Obviously, now it would be photos taken every two seconds, but back then it wasn't. So it was just all pattern, just good crap walking around, talking everybody. Yeah, and that was that was the same was part of the night doing that. You know, I used to love that. I bet you're just making something of it, and it? it's no like I, I like you're fucking rocking up doing your hour and then fucking off. And I think the punters really appreciate that, don't they? They they can see. I mean, even look for me as a, as a DJ when I seen you enjoying yourself. I was just like fucking that's brilliant you know it, it was a local gig for me I was fucking driving the next day the tables had probably turned but it was brilliant to see you just fucking enjoying yourself you know and you said to me that's a fucking local gig and you're just up the road it's not, it's not a stressor road, right? half an hour away from those <laughs> you've got yeah, I've got you I finally talked to you into doing like an open to close set up in Glasgow and I'm and I'm looking forward to that and, and uh, we've talked about music and are you as a DJ you get the challenge and you're you're looking forward to that just to be able to play what you want all night 
Aye. I mean, when we used to do the residence in Newcastle, they used to have the side room, which was called the escape room. And I used to do the warm-up set in the main room and then go back and do the side room where I would do six, seven hours or whatever it was in the side room playing techno, acid, jazz. So whatever I wanted to play, I could play it in that back room kind of thing. And it was a sort of small audience captive audience yeah. and to kick off in there big time you know what I mean because you could just play anything and you know that all the people who are in there are going to appreciate whatever you play it doesn't matter they're going yeah. to appreciate it it's the same thing for me for this OTC thing I know I can play whatever I want to play of course man all those people who have come there to see me are going to appreciate whatever I play yeah. so you know I can test new boundaries I can play stuff that I would never normally play in a rave night because I think well you lot will appreciate it uh, and that's what I think is amazing about it and and, I, and bizarrely a lot of DJs that I've spoke to and asked don't get that and I know you get that like you know, people are there to see and hear you and it's no they're there to see and hear you play fucking that one style all night they're just there to celebrate you as a DJ and they're on board they've bought a ticket they're on board to whatever the fuck it is you want to play because they're having a good night regardless Aye. And hopefully a lot of the people who I know are going, who I know have bought tickets already, are people who have been through the whole scene, who started in the early 90s and they've been right through the sort of the 2000s and they went through the new gigs and they're still going up. Yeah. So they're, they're going to be in everything and they've heard it all. A hundred percent, man. It's going to be fucking mega. It's, it's actually nearly sold out. You know, there's only a few tickets left, which uh-huh. is fucking brilliant, you know, to sell it. You know yourself as a promoter, just to fucking sell something out before the gig just takes another wee level of stress off. You're just like, it's everything's cool. <laughs> Aye, everything's fucking paid. We just need to fucking switch the lights on and here we go. Aye. So it's going to be great. Um, you're, you're, you're not doing the record label anymore, right? Like, again, your yeah. website, social media, you're not, are you in and about it? Is you, what? I'm just it's one of those things is I'm tight for time and I've got to think about anything that I put my time into which takes us away from my family yep. or whatever else I'm doing is it worth me time so I'm thinking doing tunes I would love to I'm getting asked all the time you know Technotrance has relaunched Judgment Day Records and he's wanting to do an album him and Martin Langer they're doing a FUBAR album and something else is coming off and Alex is doing his own album which he's going to release on Judgment Day Records but he wanted to do a track with me yeah. and I'm seeing, oh yeah man I'm totally but it, the buzz is fantastic but have I got the time and am I getting anything out of this other than just put my name on a track kind of thing and I'm going to do one with Alex but you know he keeps on saying oh you should go into the studio I would love to say yeah I've got ideas in my head all the time go into a studio and put a, a four tracker out or something like that just for the buzz of doing it but I haven't got the time to do it because I'd want to spend you know a good yeah. few days thinking about it and putting it together I wouldn't just rush it out and I haven't got that kind of time free anymore if there was a big payday at the end of it, I'd have to uh, and say, hey, it's worth my time. But if I'm just basically doing it for nothing, I'm thinking, you know, I can't really do it. I want to, the buzz is there, but I just kind of do it. I, I know. Think. I totally get it. And it's not like back in the day when you know you're going to sell X amount of records and there's a wage at the end of it, so you I, can justify... You do it, I kind of thing. Uh, you, I, that's a hard thing, just juggling time, isn't it? I totally... Well, wait, I'm it's sure... Once you've got kids and stuff as well, you, you're always thinking, you know, I can't be away from home because I should be here. Aye, 100%. 100%. It just changes changes everything. It changes things for the better, but like you're saying, your time management, you need to think about it a lot more. And Aye. But I, I just, I just mate, again, thanks for spending the time to do this, because I know even we, we spoke about doing this fucking 
over and over trying to do this trying to do that getting the time because like you were always saying oh and you need you need half an hour I was like it's not going to be half an hour it's going to yeah. need a couple of hours at least maybe yeah. three hours and I've got to find time when am I going to get three hours free yeah. that I can do this for you you know yeah, well, mate, I've, I've had a blast chatting to you. I really appreciate the time you spent today, and I'm sure all the punters appreciate the time that you've spent over the fucking years and the gigs that you do now. Are you, I mean, are you, st- are you still, would you say you're a DJ now or is it a, a hobby? I mean, where, where are you mentally with all this? Are you just fucking enjoy? I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but. Hardcore has been. No, 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 at all. No, at all. I mean, because we're all fucking getting a second chance. But where are you? Where are you now? We all mentally. What? Just, I'm uh, just going along with it. You know, it's, it's, it's. It, to me, if I'm doing a gig now, if I get asked to do a gig, like you say, Lindisfarne thing, to me, it's like, am I getting a night out out of it? Yeah. Can I take the missus. Can I go on the train? Or have I got a mate that'll drive us so I can just go up, get pissed, have a fucking dance about, have a laugh, and hey, get paid at the end of it as well. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, other than that, you know, I'm just, you know, just living life. <laughs> oh, that's great, man. Well, listen, thanks a lot for spending the time doing this fucking podcast. Oh, I really appreciate it, guy. <laughs> and I look forward to seeing you at OTC, man. And I, I'm going to try and get this edited and up out tomorrow or the next right, day man. or whatever. So yeah, I look forward fine. to that. Get those last couple of tickets sold. <laughs> they're away man they're, 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 it's going to be brilliant man and you're, you're going to enjoy it I'll just need to fucking prepare myself for the drinks bill at the end of the night uh, don't worry I'm going to pace myself <laughs> I a little bit too early at Lindisfarne <laughs> when, when you see this dancing was that when you were on or was that when I was on no I think I can't remember apparently I left the decks for a while I it was it, I think it was Slipmat that was on, yeah. and I, I'm just fucking looking out at the crowd, and I just seen your fucking head dancing away, and I just and I, and I took I took a double take, and I was like, is that? And I was like, fucking brilliant, just you fucking <laughs> charging away. <laughs> <laughs> I was gutted because I actually missed out. I know you went to see what's that fucking band again? Oh, I. I, right. I went I, I wanted to go and see them but right. I, they put me in the fucking the whole island and the tide came in and they couldn't come to get me until the tide went out because it blocked the road yeah, but it was. <laughs> Aye, so by the time I got there I'd fucking missed the gig so was it mega I think a lot of people missed them anyhow because everybody was in the tent and it started to really piss down and they got too many people in the tent so the security stopped people from coming into the tent oh, fuck. so a lot of people didn't get to see them either because they couldn't get into the tent alright oh, but it was a great wee festival, man. We were at the back as we were standing at the bar. <laughs> we went in to get drinks, so we were at the bar when they started. <laughs> holding it up, holding the bar up. Aye, right. <laughs> but I think fe- we festivals like that are great, in it? Because it was a really kind of mixed crowd and all that as well, wasn't it? It's was one of the best gigs I've ever done, to be honest. I loved it. I loved the vibe of it being a mixed crowd. Aye. Everybody there, in, everything... Just we mad tents playing different kind of music and all that people say it to me afterwards that they love me set but they've never been to a rave or they've never heard that kind of music before because they're into like reggae or whatever we're dancing the way to you know and I'm like really? and they're like yeah they're totally amazing kind of thing you know but they're just into music the music and the vibe and having a a good dance about you know what I mean I don't I don't know if you've you've maybe tried it I tried down there they've got they called it Mead which is their kind of the the I kind of butt fast, but it's made out of honey and water. Is it? Aye, it's 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 like a dessert wine, but no as sweet as a dessert wine. 
Right. It's a bit I'm fucking mad. That <laughs> Aye, Disney, Disney sound appealing, but it's actually all right because I, I was drinking it before I, I came and the guy was serving it in the pub. Mm. He's like, that's a local drink for you down here. So I bought that and I bought a gin, took it up the road. Cool. <laughs> but anyway, right, I'll let you go, mate. Thanks very right. much. Good, I'll, I'll end this and we'll get a wee chat before you go. Facebook, DJ Mallorca Lee. I've been up for four days. I don't know what's right and wrong anymore. Oh, wow, this stuff's incredible. Excellent. Podcast.